Welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead creator of Deeper Into Movies. We're a pop-up cinema based in London and New York. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by British filmmaker Mark Jenkin, Cornwall in the house, and Mark you may know from his breakout movie Bait. He's back with a new deeply sinister folk horror film Ennis Main and this really establishes him as a unique and fascinating and deeply strange filmmaker whose film techniques are just wild. No one's making films like this guy now. So I was really excited to get into it with him and talk about his process. This was a cool chat. I saw Ennis Main last week and then I shot my pals at BFI a message and said, I'd love to chat to Mark. Can he do the podcast? And they said, uh, you're a bit late. He's kind of wrapped up press. And then I got a message yesterday that said he'll do tomorrow at 11 a.m. So I had zero time to prep. I hope you can't hear that in the pod. Here's me and Mark Jenkin. So you grew up in Cornwall. Yeah. What kind of teenager were you? What were you into? Oh God, what a question. Um, what kind of teen? Well, in my early teens, I was, um, my, my big passion was making model railways. And I mentioned that because I think now looking back at it, that's how I started on my love of making films. It was a natural it was a natural uh, progression from one to the other. So I think that was how I would identify myself as a, certainly as a young teenager. Then I got into filmmaking when I was a, a little bit older through photography. Did you have your own 35 mil camera? What was your first camera? Yeah, I, I, I had a, um, it was here actually. It's not, it's in my studio now. I had a, um, a Pentax Program A 35 millimeter stills camera um that my dad bought me when i started doing a photography a level i'd done a i was doing a biology a level and i was rubbish at it and i used to skive off the lessons and go and hide in the dark in the dark room at the college and through hiding in the dark room during biology lessons i learned how to print photographs but the photography tutor said to me one day he said you're not actually on this course are you <laughs> how long did it take him to work out well quite a long time because it was i was always in the dark room so i don't think he ever really knew who i was i was hanging around with a mate of mine who was on the course right but but i I'd, I'd fallen in love with printing images and he said well if you're going to hang around down here all the time you should get on the course so i got on the course and and um i think I, at that point i'd really found my passion and so my dad um bought me a camera 35 mil camera and I just started shooting black and white stills and um 
and printing them. And I was never happier yeah, than in the dark room, listening to music, printing, printing pictures. And I used to print like photo stories, used to try and create narrative out of these images that I was printing. And eventually the, the other photography tutor said to me that you're, he said, you're, you're, you're basically recreating, um, moving images by trying to create lots of different stills. So, um, he advised me to shoot super eight. And so I went and got myself a super eight camera and, and started shooting super eight. And that's where I am now, really still shooting super eight. What kind of photos were you taking? Was it still life or people? Or No, mostly people, people in landscape, but trying to, trying to imply some sense of narrative but I mean, you know, I was sort of 18, 17, 18 years old. So it was, it was pretty existential, pretentious crap. You've got to go through that. I always find even when I look back at all my old student films and photography and stuff, you've got to go through that. Even when you're just copying other, like in my teenage years, all I just want to do is trying to copy one takes from Scorsese films. But it's yeah, I mean, I was, I was always into, I was never into, into that sort of cinema, really. I was always much more into experimental stuff so i was yeah i was ripping off some pretty existential art cinema but in a but not really not really doing it justice no but it's kind of even fun when you when you copy something and it sort of looks like who you're trying to emulate yeah when you and you end up really perfecting the process as well and establishing your own processes so it's all you know, I think forging things is a good way of learning. How are you discovering films? And what kind of things were you into? You said you're into a lot of art films. Um, well, I was Channel 4 was a big thing. So uh, being on being on the dole in North Cornwall and sitting up late at night watching Channel 4 was a, was a, a way of um, discovering a lot of stuff like once I'd left college. Um, and also just a really great cinema in the town that I grew up in, the Regal in Wade Bridge in North Cornwall, which was was showing, you know, mainstream stuff, but it was it was somewhere we always went every Friday night we would go to the cinema. Um and just watch whatever was on, you know, it didn't really matter. So I did have that sort of exposure to mainstream cinema alongside the stuff that I was kind of finding on 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 channel four they they there was a Derek Jarman season in the early 90s that was on and I discovered his his stuff and got really into um the garden was the first thing that I saw that he did and then I remember I remember then um getting a train up to London to go and see a print of the tempest in nft1 at the at the bfi and just going up to London on my own and, and watching the tempest and that that was my introduction to the to the BFI and to the NFT, which was then really exciting to to have that open up in in front of me. Um, and, you know, I didn't go back again for years afterwards, but it was just sort of exciting to think that there was this place in London that was just dedicated to showing to showing cinema. So it's, it's great now that I'm sort of hosting my own events there. Feels sure, like yeah, gone full circle. And what were you listening to? You said you were listening um, to a lot of music in the darkroom. I was wondering what. Yeah, lot, well, my sister's taste in music. She's four years older than me, so I was listening to things like Pixies and The Cure, um, Half Man, Half Biscuit, The Smiths, 
that kind of stuff. And then it would it would have been the early nineties. So things like I don't know, it was it was like when the Manchester stuff was all kicking off. So mm-hmm. Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, um, Paris Angels, particular favourite of mine. Um, and also hip hop. Um, Three Feet High and Rising was a big a big album for for us. Were you making music as well? I know you you, do, you score yourself, so I was wondering. Yeah, trying to. I was in a band at, <laughs> at college. You know, I spent about the last forty years trying to learn how to play the guitar. But I I played in a band. Um, well, sang really badly in a, in a band when we were at college, but never never played live. Just used to rehearse the same four songs over and over again week after week <laughs> until until we split up due to due to musical similarities, as to quote a Paul Heaton phrase. <laughs> That's a great line. Um, when did you move to London? You were you came a promo producer in London. Was that for yeah, music I'd, videos? Um, it, it doing it was actually sort of um, film promos for Channel Five. So it was like it was TV film trailers of terrible films. We were given an open brief to to cut our own trailers for so it'd be quite they could be quite mocking of the films because they were sort of bad films that had been seen a million times and um just channel five just desperate to get an audience for their movies so it was that would have been nine beginning of 1999 i moved there from bournemouth i'd been at college i'd been at um university studying a production degree in bournemouth from 95 to 98 and then i worked on couple of building sites in Bournemouth um didn't really want to move to London so I, I was working on building sites and trying to make my own stuff and then eventually I moved to London in 1999 was there till 2002 and yeah work editing film trailers for for TV mostly how was that was that tedious or was it kind of fun no it was brilliant it was it was really good um good training you know cut a couple of trailers a week so really sort of picking apart a, a film and working that and pulling out the key elements of it in order to 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 reinvent it really so i watched a lot of films and a lot of bad films and cut a lot of trailers and learned how to edit and learn ed- different editing systems inside out so it was a really good very good training and yeah i really loved it i d- i just wanted to get out of london though that was a thing i think once i'd once i'd got out of cornwall it, it was a uh, it was a case of working out how I could move back to Cornwall and and be sustainable here. Right, you don't like, was it the city? What was it about London that? Yeah, I'm just a, I'm just a Cornish kid, really. Just a you know bit overwhelming. Um, really miss the sea. Really miss the people. Um, and I do, you know, I love. I'm back up in London in a couple of days' time for for a few days, and I, I love I love London now. But then I just, I think because I had no idea of how I was going to get out of London, that was kind of, that was scary. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, oh God, is this it now? Am I just going to be in, in the city for forever? <laughs> so I'm very determined to, to get to get home. And when did you begin teaching? Um, I, I did a bit of teaching at the Falmouth University when I moved back to Cornwall. Um, it was it, at first it was just a really good way of making some good money because the university was the best paid job that was available within Cornwall. And so at first it was just going in and, and sitting in on sort of graduation film 
crits. Um, and then I just really enjoyed it. And so I ended up doing more and more and actually rather than just doing crits, did a bit of teaching as well and, and mentoring students. And it was it just really, I don't know, just kept my, my mind sharp really at the, at the university. I did it. I ended up almost being full time there for a couple of years when I wasn't doing my own work, but, but then um, had to kind of give it up again as my work picked up. But it was, um, yeah, it's good. I, I miss it. I'm still associated with the university. I'm a, I'm a professor there, so I've got, a, I'm still very much linked to the university, but I do much less sort of hands-on teaching now. I went to Southampton Institute for film school, which was. Uh, well, we had Ken Russell as a mentor. Yeah. Which was pretty wild. I have a weird memory. I remember we had to come in and pitch our films. And I had this weird kind of, I was really into Chris Morris and we had this weird kind of, um, I said it was like Chris Morris meets American Psycho idea. And Ken was so fucking offended. He got really, I think he's really drunk. And then right. he was like, this film is awful. Get the fuck out. And I was like, okay. And then oh, they were wow. like, Ken, you can't kick people out of the class. You need to hear them out. And he's like, I didn't <laughs> like that film. Next. I've never been. What, so what year were you, what years were you there? I was 2001, 2001, 2002. Right. Okay. I was going to say, cause we used to, I had friends at Southampton and we used to hitchhike up. We used to save up our, dole money for a month and then hitchhike up to Southampton and hang out for sort of a long weekend Southampton University so I've got some fond memories patchy fond memories of Southampton but yeah never came across Ken Russell oh it was wild and then we had there was another task where for your graduation film you have to come in and pitch mm. and it was Ken and two other lecturers who just play the role of real kind of hard ass film execs mm. who are just going to punch holes in your film. And it was really sadistic. It was really cool. It was so hard just to come in, you know, because they, and they hide out, they took one of the big boardrooms yeah. up on the top floor of the university and you have to come in and it was almost like some sort of, I don't know, Simpson Bruckheimer type of kind of, what's, <laughs> what's the 10 second pitch kid? Come on, you're boring yeah. me. What is it? And I was like, so what, and it, but it was made clear they were sort of playing a role. Was it kind so of, it, 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 it was really brutal. It was really, yeah. I, I came out really upset. I, 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 I don't know when you, when you're just cu coming in there with your kind of, your film, you you know, you're not very confident in what you're saying. And, um, I remember I, I really fucked up. I said, um, I just, I did where it was someone who's about who had to hand himself in the next day. Mm -hmm. And he was just trying to see some friends before he goes in for something quite minor. Yeah. And I said, I said something like, he's going to hand up, but it's going to feel really real in the sense I'm, you know, kind of leaning towards the kind of British realism of like Mike Lee or something. Yeah. And they were like, of course it's meant to look real. That's what cinema's fucking about. And I was like, let's wrap this up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's way that's too not tough. what, that's not what cinema's about. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a creator streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema. Iconic directors, emerging auteurs, Mubi always says something new to discover. Every film is hand-selected. I've been a Mubi subscriber for years. Okay, I love doing this. Let me browse the Mubi UK platform and pick out free movies for you to watch. Beach Rats from 2017, starring the great Harris Dickinson, Eliza Hitman's debut, which, how did I pitch it when I was talking about it the other day? An aquatic Larry Clark movie. There you go. Number one, two. I've got to keep talking about it. After Sun. This film is beautiful. It's deserving all the Oscar buzz. Believe the hype. And the mark of a great filmmaker. Great debut. Really excited to see what she does next. Okay, final one. Mysterious Skin by Gregoraki from 2004. Absolutely haunting and beautiful coming-of-age story. If you know Greg's movies, you know to expect a beautiful shoegaze soundtrack. And Robin Guffrey from Cockatoo Twins did the music. What a great movie. I saw that at the London Film Festival when it came out and I ran over to Gregoraki to get my DVD signed and talk to him. And I was just gushing and then I looked over and the very handsome Joseph Gordon-Levitt was looking on at me like, wow, this guy's a real fanboy. Deeply embarrassing memory. Okay, there we go. There are my free picks. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash deeper into movies. That's Mubi.com slash deeper into movies for a whole month of great cinema free. Watch my recommendations and find a bunch more. There's always great stuff on there. So was there a particular moment where you kind of landed on your aesthetic and you're shooting on 16 mil, developing your own film? How how, how, how did this, I'd say, your, your trademark look and signature come about? Well, no, I, I sort of lost track of how I wanted to make films by being sort of dragged along by the, the technology. So I started out shooting Super 8 because that that was at a period of time where that's what you did if you were shooting films and you had no money. You shot on Super 8. There were there were video cameras. There was like v, you know big VHS cameras and and maybe like Video 8 analog video cameras, but they weren't sort of as the thing to to shoot proper films on. The you shot it on Super 8 if you wanted to shoot film. So I started shooting Super 8, and then when I was at Bournemouth um, studying production, it was when the first we were shooting on things like um beta sp cameras and then trying to and then and then we were recoloring it and grading it to make it try and look like film and that kind of thing but then the big revolution was that the mini dv cameras 
came out and I remember me and my friend Steve going from Bournemouth University and getting the bus up back up to the NFT again and to the Museum of the Moving Image which was at the on the South Bank at that time and they had on a plinth as you walked into the museum they had the first mini DV camera there and I remember we wow. went up to look to look at this mini DV camera before it had been released and and that was the start of it, really, of low-budget filmmaking for me, was getting hold of a mini-DV camera. And I, and I did shoot a 60-minute film in 1999, which was finished in 2001, which was shot on a mini-DV camera, which I hired. It cost me a £1,000 to hire it for a fortnight. Is that Goldenburn? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, and, I'm, and I made that film, and, and then I was really just sort of, I thought the mini-DV camera is kind of, revolutionary and it was it was revolutionary for low budget filmmaking and i loved the aesthetic of it um but then i progressed on to sort of more i followed the the technology really and when new cameras came out i moved on to new cameras so then it was like the those eight there's sort of mini dv hd cameras that, and I used them and then i ended up getting a dslr and working on a dslr and then started shooting stuff on the higher end high hd cameras and working with cinematographers dps um and wasn't really questioning what i was doing in terms of workflow but i did but i I, I then there was a point where i thought actually i've i'm I'm really lost interest in making films i was so removed from the camera and from the technology because i couldn't keep up with it and it was sort of like technicians and people who were who sort of had the creative control in the projects i was working on and then, so I decided to buy, I hadn't shot Super 8 for a long time. I decided to buy a Super 8 camera, a new old Super 8 camera. And also I thought it would be a good time to shoot some Super 8 because all the labs were closing. It looked like Kodak were going to go out of business. So I thought I'm going to get a Super 8 camera, buy a, buy a Super 8 camera, buy a few rolls of film and shoot some Super 8 before it dies. And it just reignited everything for me in terms of, my love for for film and because the labs were closing I, I hand process I bought black and white film and I started hand processing my own black and white and then I bought some ectochrome as well and, and, and bought a, a processing kit for that and so process some color reversal film and I also went and did a couple of workshops at a place called Nowhere who were in Bethnal Green at the at the time like an artist's run film lab and learned how to use the Bolex 16 millimeter camera and and hand processing black and white 16 millimeter it just demystified it all for me and I said actually I can do all of this myself and started making some short films in that way which then got noticed by festivals probably because they were some of the only films that were being shot on film at that time this is about 10 years ago mm-hmm. and meanwhile I was still developing narrative longer form projects but in a more conventional way but they didn't they weren't really going anywhere so at some at one point i just thought what if i what if i combine my handmade filmmaking techniques to these narrative scripts that i've got maybe i can re-energize those projects and re-energize myself and so i got um i made a film called um uh bronco's house which is a 44 minute long film which was like the precursor to bait it feels a bit like a dry run of bait now but it wasn't it wasn't intended to be at the time it was gonna it was a standalone film 44 minute long 
and uh, and that that's that's where I got to really just combining those narrative screenplays with a with what was perceived as a more experimental hands-on hand homemade way of, of producing the films what was the first mini dv was that a sony camera the one that was at the south bank that we went to look at i think it was a sony like an upright almost looked like a book to know what it was a sony one or something and then the the one we shot golden burn on was the vx 1000 with the top handle on it that's what i've got yeah i i got i remember watching um jackass and things like that and all the skate videos and they had with the top, yeah, because I used the top handle for all the yeah, for videos. yeah, I was like, that's so, and and, I, and then I bought a Sony PC one twenty, the tiny, tiny ones about the size of an iPhone, yeah, with the flip out screen, yeah, because that's what yeah. I, I read Chris Cunningham was using that on loads yeah. of projects, so I was like, I want that because then obviously my films are gonna <laughs> look exactly like this. And that's <laughs> not that's not the case. Yeah, but, I've got I've got one of those, I bought one of those Sony cameras not that long ago. I bought it on eBay for like seventy five quid with about six batteries and about twenty tapes and stuff. And amazing! I just, thought, I just want another. I want a camera like that because maybe one day I'll shoot a, another mini DV film. Maybe. But I've, I really think the the Sony PC one twenty has got a really weird grain mm. that kind of that. I remember when I had it at uni, everyone was always mistaking it for sixteen mil. Yeah, and it, it was a re- that, there was that really interesting phase in dv especially like yeah. when michael mann's collateral and things mm. like that that now just have a completely alien aesthetic where it's not film it's not digital it's almost in this kind of yeah so i was gonna say it's a real never world analog digital format because it was it's digital but it's got it's not it hasn't got the sharp edges it's it's the color space is really great the the noise looks like grain yeah and you get you know and tape and shooting on tape it's like shooting on film because it's linear you get those weird juxtapositions between what you you know you shoot something on it and then leave it for six months and you pick it up again and start shooting again there's a weird moment where it goes from one scene to the next which you don't really get on sort of those those card formats where every shot is separate and exists in its own little space so i do think we lost something when we when we moved away from tape yeah i like that tape that it's burnt you know it's burnt onto the tape it's fair with sd cards i I always have anxiety anytime i'm exporting anything that is this gonna corrupt is this gonna while tape just felt felt a lot more solid yeah 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 so with bait this was i was just so curious to your process because you record without sound on a hand crank camera. Yeah. How how long, uh, how long of a mags on that? How long can you shoot for? It's about 27 seconds. Really? Yeah. I mean, each shot is about 27 seconds because you, you want, you wind the spring and then the spring lasts 27 seconds. Uh, the, the actual film is about two and a half minutes long. So yeah, you can get like five, 27 second shots on the roll but most of the time i'm shooting much shorter shots much more f- fragmented in the way that i shoot so h- how much planning do you have do you storyboard everything meticulously no do you... don't story don't storyboard anything i shot list stuff 
and I have a very clear idea in my head of what what's needed for a for a scene. But because I'm the writer and the DP and the editor, I don't tend to write a lot of it down. It's all stored in my head. And I don't shoot coverage. I just shoot the fragments that I think I'm going to use in in the edit, which normally means I'm a bit short of stuff within the scene when I'm editing it, which which forces me to be a bit more experimental and a bit more non-linear. I, I guess you just have your egg timer in your head of how long you can take over for on a scene and yeah i mean if it most of the time i know it's going to be way under because it would just be short little fragments that right. shooting. if i if i'm going to shoot something where i need to get the full wind the full yeah. 27 seconds then i'll block it and time it to make sure we've got enough time um you know and i'll, and I'll use a stopwatch on occasions when right. it's when it gets very uh close to the limit and is this a Bolex you're using? Yeah, Bolex H16 SB. So it's a bayonet mount Bolex. So one of the one of the more modern ones. Nineteen, I think it's like 1975, 1976. It was made. And how how many do you have? How reliable are they? Are they just workhorses? Yeah, I mean, I get them serviced before we shoot each film, but I've never touch wood been let down by them by them yet. I've got two. I've got an, an RX. Four, which is um, a Rex 4, which is a 1960s camera, which is the turret-mounted uh, lens the lens mount system. And I use that as a second camera. Um, so I've got two, and then I've just been given another one, which needs to be really overhauled. It's a bit knackered. But, um, yeah, so I should have, by the end of this year, I should, should have three that are operational. But I think on NS Main, we only shot one yeah one shot where we used two cameras which was the stunt which we had we used two cameras because it was just an expensive setup whereas most of the time i'm just shooting one camera and how's it for the actors when you're working with them to um how, how long is it for them to get into the rhythm of your process and unique style um i don't know i, I think it's pretty i think it's pretty straightforward because i think every film's different you know I think we think there's a sort of homogenized way of making films, but I think each director works in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, I don't record any sound. I don't record any dialogue on location, but it's not like the actors are not saying anything. They're, 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 they're doing it as if, um, as if they're, as if they are being recorded. So if it's not a boom there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I don't think that's any, any different. I, I've got a very, paired back way i like performers to perform with as little performance and theatricality as possible um but yeah i mean and i work with a combination of actors and non-actors so i think that for the i always think the actors are going to be kind of freaked out by the way that i work or surprised yeah. by the way i work and and the non-actors are not going to know any better but i think what happens is the actors are are incredibly versatile and they like to be challenged so doing something a bit different you know at least they tell me that they they enjoy it and the non-actors i think the opposite quite often they have preconceptions about how something's going to be done and it's not done in that way but then they again they get very used to it but i've had people who've been in in my films who like an actor who, who was in bait who then went off to do um another film a more that was shot in a more conventional way and I think he was quite surprised at, at, at how that person worked 
because he said, "Oh, you know, oh yeah, we had to. We actually, they actually recorded the dialogue while we were filming." <laughs> what are they like? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, "Yeah, that's normally what happens." But then other, you know, then we had an actor who on on bait, which is the previous film, who came who came along. He'd just been doing a BBC, um, like primetime BBC TV series. He just he just finished shooting, and he came onto our set. And I said, "Look, we're not, we don't record any dialogue. We do it all later." And he said, "Well, yeah. I mean, that's what we do most of the time on the thing that I've just done. You know, we we ADR all the dialogue anyway." So, you know, I think uh, I think there's preconceptions about what, the way things should be, but actually, most people, everybody's got a different way of working, and and the actors are incredibly versatile on the whole. I know you said you have to lip read all the dialogue in post. Yeah. And then you do a version where you think you lay a track of you doing all the voices and then a final pass where you, I'm guessing you get the actors to come back in and do record their lines. Yeah. I mean, on bait, because there was, there were lots of characters. There was a version of the film where I'd done every, all of the dialogue for all the different characters, just because I needed the dialogue to be in there to, for it to be, for me to be able to edit on the new one on NS main it was slightly different because there's much there's far fewer characters and much less dialogue so yeah there may have been a couple of lines that i i dropped in my own um performance but it was actually quite it it wasn't a such a big logistical undertaking getting all the actors back in because it was it was mostly mary came in and did hers so yeah it, it wasn't so much that way with this last film with the way you record you've got total freedom to create your sound design but also are are you just making insanely difficult technical logistics and nightmares for yourself or is this all part of a fun for you no i never let it become a nightmare because the sound i don't have any sound to start with which i think is the best creative starting point because all you do is work with a blank canvas whereas quite often if you're if you're working with location sound especially on a low budget the first thing you start doing is having to mend all the things that are wrong with it which i think is a really bad creative starting point so you you know trying to remove the sound of an airplane over a dialogue track or the sound of a fridge that you couldn't switch off in a location or something like that so Mm -hmm. I, I I like not having any problems. I just have sort of challenges, creative cha- challenges to face. And I don't let it become a nightmare because if it's something too complicated or too difficult to recreate, then I'll completely reject the realism of it and go in, a, in an abstract way. Right. So there's some things that I can't recreate sound-wise in the studio. And I know straight away that I have to have a different approach to it and they're the bits that end up being the more interesting parts of the film i think is it you just going out with a portable recorder and picking up sounds or yeah yeah i'll just i'll revisit the locations um without the distraction of a camera or having to think visually and i'll pick up different different sounds i'll also use that sound effects libraries and i'll grab stuff from here there and everywhere really and start mixing it and uh, and combining it in in new ways but it, it's a very relaxing part of the process for me because it's it's just me with a microphone and a and a recorder and a pair of headphones going out back out into the into the landscape and and just you know so it's, it's a very 
peaceful, calming and ultimately cheap part of the production process. And you develop your own film? I do. I didn't on this one, um, the lab processes, because it was colour. Um, it's a lot more technically challenging to to develop the colour negative. The, the chemicals are not are not particularly nice and it's very temperature dependent. Um, so it would have taken a long time to do this amount of color rushes. I mean, I've processed my own color films plenty of times in the past, but mostly with short, shorter, shorter films. Um, so yeah, we gave Kodak the, the privilege of doing all the processing on this one. And what film stock was this? It, it was so beautifully saturated on NS main. It's, it's Vision 3, so it's just the Kodak, Color Neg, 50D, 250D and 500T, and then we really pushed it in the in the retiming in the post-production, so really pushed the colour and pushed the grain. Wanted it to sort of look like a, almost like an old sort of Kodachrome film. Yes. Um, but it's very difficult to replicate that. Um, but yeah, just, um, yeah, push it, push it as far as, as far as we can before it you know just to the point where it's almost starting to fall to pieces saturation's almost too far and the grain's almost too far what were you watching for inspiration for this film um in terms of maybe the horror elements of a a amazing kind of weird sense of tension and doom that you have in this film i don't know i suppose nothing nothing particularly specific it's just there that's the sort of film that that period of film is, is the sort of period i'm interested in that 1970s almost horror stuff um i mean i just actually just at the moment just uh, been reading about um the shout skolomowski's the shout from 1978 i think that's a big big influence on me without without knowing why really um the sort of almost horror film which I think is a, a phrase that Kim Newman first coined. What else is an almost horror film? I'm wondering what else falls into that genre, do you think? Something like Symptoms as well. So have I seen that? I don't think I've seen that. La Raz, Spanish, Spanish director, but British film. Yeah, Scott oh, I Amosky. have. Yeah, this got re-released recently, I think. Yeah, I just, yeah. Programmed, I just programmed it at the BFI as part of a season of films supporting the release of Venice, Maine. You know, and a, and a lot of the sort of British kind of, I mean, I suppose they are outright horror, but the sort of ghost stories for Christmas stuff, yeah. the Lawrence Gordon Clark films, some of the um, Children's Film Foundation films, some of the creepier Children's Film Foundation films of the 70s and 80s. And, and you know, some more outright sort of horrific stuff, like the public information films as well that we were exposed to as kids. Oh, my God, yeah, I've... Uh... Like the firework movies, the firework ones I remember, and uh, yeah, the screams of horror of uh, crossing the road. We see the yeah. reaction shot of someone getting hit by a car, and you just hear all the screaming and the Cut, flying yeah. your kite underneath overhead power lines and yes. getting your frisbee back from a substation and yeah, which kind of almost um... so they're horror, but they can't you know because they were designed for kids, they weren't able to show the horror. No, we're just hearing the screams where it's like, oh, God, Jenny, no. Ah. It's yeah, like and fucking, then a freeze frame. What the hell happened to her? You know, that was... Yeah. Well, I suppose which kind of um, the final one about is like watching Freds or something in the 80s, which was just 
absolutely horrific and terrible. Watching what? Sorry, Freds. Oh yeah, which we were, we watched that at school. Dude, it's one of the most horrific things I've ever seen. It's so haunting. Yeah, and so and so realistic in like the countdown of like day one. You know, yeah. hospitals are at capacity. Day day two. Yeah, I mean, and that's no that power. really is a built-in foreboding. You know. Yeah. Yeah, and and also like um, Peter Watkins, the War Game. Oh yeah, he's amazing. I I just watched his um, Edward Munch. Oh yeah, Edward Munch four hour yeah. cut, which is just spectacular. Yeah, yeah, impossible to take your eyes off that, isn't it? So beautiful, it's just incredible. Also, kind of one of those how the fuck did that get made or funded type of movies, which is yeah. Well, I think you know it's good like a four hour. You know, it's pictures like a four hour documentary. You think, oh god, I'm gonna have to be you know really on it to get through this, and then it just starts. And it's so compelling the atmosphere of it and. I, I read, you know, how, about I wrote my dissertation on Peter Watkins and was, um, and was, uh, you know, I, I did, I met him, and um, was just completely fascinated and addicted to his his work, and then you know my other big love is Robert Bresson films, yeah, and then. I read something quite recently saying about how much Watkins was influenced by Bresson and I'd never made that connection. I thought, Oh yeah, of course, you know, that's what, there's a definite lineage there. And also, you know, that's why I like both of them so much, but I'd never noticed that before. And what was your initial idea for this movie? What was the spark of the idea? Um, I think it's sort of the I was attracted to to making a genre film because it was it was kind of easy to pitch. Yeah. You know, after after pitching bait, which was very difficult to sort of explain what bait was gonna be, I kinda of liked the and people a lot of people said that bait felt like it was almost a horror film at times, it had a sense of foreboding and the uncanny within it. And I thought, well actually maybe I could just make a straight horror film. And that'd be really easy to pitch to execs and financiers and even to an audience. Mm -hmm. So that was the starting point. And I think actually it might have been a, a mistake. And I've, I've really shied away from calling it a horror film because I think if we call it a horror film, it might disappoint horror fans and it might put off an an element of the audience who don't think they like horror, horror films. So wouldn't even come and see it if they think it was a horror film. So I don't think it was the greatest idea calling it a horror film. But the... the um. Then the the idea was to do something around standing stones and and the sort of the the sort of iconic image of a standing stone bearing down mm -hmm. on you and the, and the Christian idea of what a, what a standing stone is, you know, a sort of petri petrification of a of a of a of a sinner. I like the idea of that, and it kind of it came from there. I mean, the original story was was um, cooked up by myself and a writer called Adrian Bailey. We came up with the story together and then i ended up writing the screenplay but that was the, sort of the start of it and, al and also writing something that was set on set around a, a, a set of limitations so a single protagonist on an island um and it to be a, a, a period film they were the sort of lim limitations we set ourselves and that was the, the sort of starting point for it and how was it in the editing because i i love when i'm watching a movie from a director I admire and it's just got that slow 
your whole opening setup of her checking the plant, going to the journal, and the repetition and mounting that. How how is doing that but building the tension so slowly? You've got like a series of repetitions, but it's getting almost more eerie and unsettling as the routine passes. That's really good fun to do in the edit because you you, you do establish the routine um, and it becomes a, a, a functional sort of structure within the film that then can be subverted to a greater lesser extent to invoke the the feeling of of un, the uncanny and I you know I like I like routine and repetition within within films I think it's really effective and it's really important to to my work and just making those slight little changes as you go through to the routine but the, the routine became much more prominent or the, the film was written before the lockdown quite a long time before the pandemic I think by the time we got to making the film we'd been through the two lockdowns so the idea of routine being important and the structure of life had become really obvious during those lockdowns and actually the subversion of a routine is quite unnerving so I think that in the edit, I think a lot more of the sort of experience of the pandemic came out in the edit. Were you thinking of a viewer in terms of how much information you're releasing as and when and how we slowly kind of piece together the, not to give any spoilers, but piece together the bigger picture? I think the, the, the only the only viewer that I think about is me when I'm watching it. I can't. I try not to think about how an audience might be reacting because I'm only guessing if I'm thinking about an audience. So I try and do it on a, on a just gut instinct of what I think works and doesn't work. And then I have like um, a few people who I do show the film to at various stages, you know, especially um, Denzel Monk, the producer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I can use him as a bit of a, you know, he'll have his own thoughts about it, but I can also use him as a bit of a mirror to reflect what I think I'm doing in the film and whether it's working or not. But I think it's a dangerous trap to fall into to second guess what the audience might want. Um, But then there is a point where you put it in front of the audience and and you watch it very publicly and then it does become quite a, a scary moment where you do suddenly think about the audience. And for us, that was in in Cannes on the 20th of May of last year when we were in a theatre with nearly a thousand people then then you then I do start thinking about the audience but then obviously (laughs) it's too late to do anything by that point yeah and how was it pitching the Radiohead videos scaring the surface looks amazing was that eight mil what what format was that that was 16 that was hand processed black and white 16 millimeter negative and I actually made a developer from the water that we took out of the mine the location we filmed in, I took the water out of the mine and created the developer using that water with all of the minerals in it. So that was, yeah, I mean, that was for the smile. So the sorry smile. Yeah. Yeah. Radiohead off, offshoot. Um, Tom Skinner joining Johnny Greenwood and, um, and Tom York. Yeah, no, it was good. I mean, they, they approached me and said they wanted to do something. So, um, we were going to do something. Well, they approached me first when we were just about to shoot Ennis Main. So I said I couldn't do anything because I had a movie to shoot. And then they came back about a year later and and said, you know, you got any time now? And 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 I'd filmed in that location for Ennis Main. We'd filmed one one scene in the mine. So I said to them, they, they sent me the song and I said, I haven't got any sort of narrative ideas or anything. And they said, great, we don't want any narrative ideas. I said, but I have got a location, which is this mine that we spent a bit of time in. I'd like to shoot shoot something in the mine. So 
we did that and and i i wrote this sort of scenario of this of this miner working underground and then suggested that tom tom york played the miner and he had a, he had to think about it for a few days and came back and said he was up for it and so he came down and we shot that february last year during during a huge storm where we were underground in complete peace but above ground the whole whole of west penwith was being blown to pieces so it was, uh, yeah it was, that was a great experience but it it was such a it was such a it was so easy because they came to they approached me you know so it wasn't i wasn't pitching for it i you know i i had to pitch an idea and they had to they had to go with it but they'd already expressed an interest to work with me so i i knew i knew that they knew what i was about so i could relax cool. and, yeah. just, and just pitch something that that i wanted to do and which came first that or the smoke video we did the smoke first the smoke was going to actually be the main music video with the idea for the shooting in the mine yeah and then we ran out of time so i did a hand scratched kind of stan brackage kind of look yeah yeah Yeah. so i did that and then um and then tom sent me the um skating on the surface track and i just said well this fits the original idea we had in the mine even better than it did for the smoke Mm -hmm. so so we did that one you know adapted it a little bit and then but then we did that one I played a biker in Leo Lee's video for Free and the Knowledge for the Smile. Ah, uh, uh, right. I don't know if you saw that one where it's almost like the 60s commune yeah. looking video. That's almost like found footage. That feels a little bit like... Um, it feels almost horror. like a... It almost feels like a Manson family um, yeah. commune. Yeah. Where a guy's coming out and it's almost like with fragments of like the almost like fragments of a bad trip coming through. Yeah, no, I love that. I, lo- I actually, I, I messaged Tom after I saw that to say how much I love that video. Yeah, Leo rang me and said, do you want to play a Hell's Angel biker for the day? So I yeah. went and did that for the day, which was super fun being on set. And yeah, it's such a great album, works. isn't it? It's so great, yeah. One thing I need to end on that's been really confusing me, on B- on the BFI interview they asked you what's your comfort film Mm -hmm. and you said the perfect storm yeah what is something about a (laughs) biological disaster film of a a vessel being lost at sea i know it's really bad with the the whole cast dying yeah yeah i know and not just the whole cast but you know the the real people i think I don't, it's it's not to do with the subject matter. It's just I. Is it the fishing world of? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, love seeing, that... I love seeing the fishing world on, on the screen. Um, you know, and it, that film isn't without authenticity problems, but it comes from brilliant source material, which is Sebastian Younger's book. I think it's technically brilliant the way it's put together. Um, I think that what I love about that film is leaving aside the subject matter, which it is a bit twisted, so it's my comfort film when you think of the subject matter. But I think it's it's like a Holly, a big narrative Hollywood commercial blockbuster that I'd love, which reminds me that I, you know, I'm not just into obscure stuff, that there are big commercial films that I love. And I can, um, I love the humanity of that film. You know, it's, it is obviously a tragedy, but I do think in, in a lot of ways it's kind of uplifting um, I find it quite difficult to articulate and you know and I, I got really obsessed with that book when it came out and I actually went to Gloucester 
to to the location to on a sort of pilgrimage and went all the way to the crow's nest pub where it's sort of set where the fishing where the crew of the sword boat used to hang out and drink and i got all the way to the pub and got to the door and then didn't go in because i just suddenly thought what am i doing here this is really mawkish thing to be doing and i and i ne- and i didn't go in um so and i think the it's the film i've probably seen the most ever um i really when it came out i really wanted to hate it i went to see it holloway road holloway odeon when i was living in london i went to see mm. it and thought oh this is going to be terrible it's going to be a hollywood representation of a fishing community and i went in and watched it and thought, oh, this is rubbish this is awful this is awful and came out people said you know what was it like oh no it's terrible and then but i watched it again and i liked it you know i think i liked it the first time i saw it and it, when we were shooting bait about three days into the shoot the weather came in and we were shut down and it was like oh god this film's going to be a disaster because we're not going to get the stuff we need because the mm-hmm. southeasterly storms come in and i remember going back to the house we were staying in and watching the perfect storm during a storm and watching this story of these people and thinking well yeah things are going bad on this film that we're trying to make but at least we're not on the Grand Banks in October in a small boat with storms colliding above us. And I think sure. that was the, that that was maybe what I was getting at when I found it comforting. Yes. Okay, that makes perfect sense. It it remind it reminds reminds me that filmmaking isn't life or death. That's a great line to end on. That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Quickly, what are you what are you up to next? What have you got projects in mind? Have you got a dream project you want to do, or well, well yeah, I've anything got, you can talk about? Funnily enough, the next film we're doing, we're sort of pitching as a cross between the Perfect Storm and Quantum Leap. It's like a ghost ship time travel saga that we should sh- we'll hopefully shoot it next year. We were kind of thinking maybe we'll shoot it at the end of this year, but I think it's too I think it's going to be too tight, so we'll probably shoot it next year. So that's all seems to be going in the in the right direction. I've got a dream project that we've got a meeting about on Monday, which is about an adaptation, which is kind of very uncertain at the moment. Unlikely that it will happen, um, just because of the 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 just because of the likelihood of getting the rights to the source material. But that's that's a dream project. But we've put together a team to do that and if it doesn't happen on this project we'll 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 do something else with that team so that's it will still it will still be a bit of a dream project it's just whether we get this the rights to this source material or not but we'll we'll know more in the next few weeks are you still thinking your way of shooting 16 mil no sound or yep no compromise fantastic always great well always for the time being yeah this has been so great so exciting talking to you you're such a refreshing unique filmmaker oh thanks man well thanks for reaching out and it's a it's a pleasure to chat and to be on the podcast thank you best of luck with all your future stuff yeah and good luck with everything you're doing cheers buddy take care right on cheers That was me and Mark Jenkin. What a crazy guy. What a great guy. Really enjoyed that chat.
Thanks to you guys for listening, and we will speak soon.